Welcome, everybody. Good to see you here. Um, we have a large number that were out to see the eclipse, so they'll be back next Sunday. And Teen Challenge is leading worship next Sunday and preaching, so it's very exciting. And that's really timely because I'm having some uh, minor surgery on Friday, so I'll be recouping and probably watching online, uh, which will be me the other way around. So welcome, everybody, online. I know that some of us uh, that are not here this morning are watching this morning and worshiping with us, and we'll be back shortly. But I'm Pastor Bruce. Welcome. Glad that you're here, and it's wonderful to be in the house of the Lord and to celebrate our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and to know the love of God in a much more rich and wonderful way. Uh, at the end of the sermon today, I want to open up a little bit to your responses because the passage that we're reading this morning concludes Romans chapter 11, and that's quite a section we've been looking at for months now. Romans 1 through 11, Paul ends that section with a doxology, a time of praise, and he just lists certain attributes of God that come to mind. What I would like us to do is, at the end of the message, I'll be reading off a list of things that others have said about God, but I'm wanting to hear from you, what is it about God, an attribute, you know, not a long uh, paragraph, but a word, that sums up how you want to praise God, like Almighty, Savior, something that resonates with you. Not a laundry list, but really means something to you. So I wanted to mention that right at the start, because later on I hope that that'll bear fruit and we can enjoy what we have to share together in the nature of God for His glory. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you this morning for such a treasure we have in Jesus. We're so thankful that we are who we are in Christ, that, Lord God, you have blessed us with the knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, buried, raised from the grave, ascended into heaven, Lord, and will come back someday. And in this crazy world, we watch the news, we see suffering, we see death, we see evil. Lord God, we pray that, as we would say at the end of the service, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, God, we come to you with reliance and confidence and comfort and peace, knowing that you are Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, and that you have called us to be light in the world that needs to know the saving grace of Jesus and what love really is, your love, and what you do, how it's worked itself out. Thank you so much that we can share this with the world around us, and thank you, God, that we, too, are comforted and encouraged by who you are and what you do, and that we get to meet you someday face to face. It's a wonder, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing.
Not 
Heavenly Father, God, it is a wonder that we have so much to be thankful for, and it's all from you. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, and we thank you, Lord, that you're the author of all goodness, love, that you're a God of grace and mercy, that you truly care. You really care. You care about life. You care about our condition. You care, God, about the events that take place in this world where the darkness seeks to overcome the light, but we know that it cannot. We remember the words of Jesus who said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So God, we come to you with thanks that you are the one that warms our hearts. You're the one that encourages and emboldens us. You're the one that comforts us. You're the one that directs our steps You're the one that ensures our faith. You're the one, Lord God, that receives our prayers and that your love, Lord God, is everlasting. Jesus said, all those the Father's given me, I'll never let go. Lord, we owe you everything. The security of our salvation, the promise of eternal life, a new heaven, a new earth to come, a place of wonder. Lord, we thank you that that wonder is you. And so, God, we come with thanksgiving in our hearts and confidence to know that you are, in fact, almighty God and that we rest in your providence. We rest in your power, your authority, your will. May we be your people active in this world to share the love of Jesus in the ways that the world can marvel at and give you praise for and to come to receive and believe the good news of Jesus. This world needs you. You know this. Help us, Lord God, to be your messengers. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Please be seated. I'd like to invite the kids to come on up to the stairs here. Why don't you join me for a minute? Middle school, high school as well. Gabe, Rachel, come on up. Whatever you want to do, just right up here on the stairs. I just want to hear from you for a few minutes. So it takes a while to come on down, and that's great. Don't worry about it. Don't rush. Take your time. Um, Just while they're on their way up, a couple of things that we can remember in our prayers is that Bibles have been placed in four elementary schools and the Oregon City High School. And and you may be surprised, but successfully done at John McLaughlin, yeah, and Redland, and Gaffney Lane, and Holcomb, and Oregon City High School. And the prayers are that somebody's going to open those Bibles and it'll be a benefit that God will shine through them. So I got word of that um, and, and I told them we would be in prayer for that to be effective. Also, on the out back of your sermon outline is a list of events and clear through December as best I can. That is simply a duplication of what's on our website. And uh, I know some of you aren't real comfortable with the internet and all that, so I put it out in print. We are working on slowly... coming back to a paper form, 
we're not quite sure what it'll look like yet or what we're going to include in all those details, but uh, we'll be trying to prevent or prevent any misinformation or any missing elements. So we'll try and do multimedia, and this is one of them is in paper. So you'll see more of that kind of thing, especially when Amy gets back in the saddle. She's been sick for a couple of weeks. Um, also, I've got some clipboards that I wanted to pass through the congregation. There's one for each side, and then if one of you could run the clipboard back up to the balcony. Um, this is a clipboard looking for people who are willing to volunteer to help us on our October 28th harvest party from 4 to 6. Um, we've got many volunteers already engaged. Uh, Jenny and I are going to take a doorway in the hallway, and what we're looking for is there's a list of needs. Feel free to look over that list and then sign that sheet if you'd like to be a part of that, and then our fellowship elders will be in touch with you and answer any questions you may have and, and fill that all out. So we're still deciding if we want to be peanut butter and jelly or chickens or who knows what we're going to be, but it's, it's just meant to be fun costumes, you know, fun stuff, not freaky, scary, bloody stuff. Um, so just want to give you a little heads up on that. But it's really a lot of fun. It's a great outreach for our preschool uh, parents who don't even attend here. Um, the kids come. We had a great showing last year. So we want to do it, and we want to do it well. So if you can sign up and help us out, that would be wonderful. And the more the merrier. Also, there are cards in the office on the counter for our missionaries for Thanksgiving. If any of you would like to go into the office after worship and put your name in that card, maybe a little note, that'd be great. They're right there on, in a little box on the counter. And hopefully we have a log jam in there. And let's see, I don't know. Is there any other general announcements that we need to make real quick? Okay. All right. How are you guys doing this morning? Yeah. All right, good. I just called you up here because I wanted you to get the congregation going. I had mentioned at the start of the service that later on after the sermon, we're going to share a word, one word that comes from our heart that describes God in some way, something meaningful to us. Like for me, I might say faithfulness. God is always faithful. If he says it, he does it. That's God's faithfulness. Is there a word that you might be able to share with us? What, what, what is it about God that you know? Something, a word. How big is God? Big. Okay, so we can say big. How powerful is God? All powerful? There's no greater power, right? Right? Where is God? Heaven? Is God everywhere? Yeah. Right. Does God love you? So is God loving? See, this is the kind of fun stuff that comes out. I've got a list of things that somebody did the alphabet, and on the alphabet it's got attributes of God or things about God that they thought of. For instance, awesome, advocate, amazing, author, avenger, Abba, almighty. My favorite one, x-ray vision. What are you going to put for x, right? X-ray vision. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what's in our heart, right? These are cool things about God. So as you go down the hallway for Sunday school, I just want you to be alert for more things about God because God is absolutely amazing and incredible. And the more we get to know him, the more amazing God is, right, to us. So let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so very much for you. You made us. You know us. You are almighty God. And we thank you that you love us. And I pray that for all the, Sunday, the children's church down the hallway, Lord, that they will grow to know you more and more 
as you know them very well. Thank you for your love, for the teachers down there, for all those who care. We're thankful that we care too, and we thank you for each one here today. Thank you, Father. Bless them, and pray that they have a wonderful morning with us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, hey, head down the hallway. Teachers are there. I know many are out this morning, and they'll be back next week. And I'm really excited, by the way, about next week. Uh, Teen Challenge is one of the ministries that um, we promote here at the church. It's for those that are the men in our area. There's men's and women's, but they keep them in separate locations. And the men out in Estacada have a wonderful ministry there. They're growing by leaps and bounds in terms of the men that have come in to attend. They don't charge them any money at all. They're there with the gospel, good news of Jesus, and recovery from addictions. And their testimonies have always been inspiring for us. And so I pray that you'll consider going to either the, the uh, November 4th fundraiser for that group. If you want to come to that, I'm going to be there. Um, we've got a table already, and I hope you'll join us in that. We'll learn more about it next week. And then also, um, Young Life down in Canby is having a fundraiser that same night in Canby. Well, I'm sure we'll hear more about that as well coming up. So keep those two especially in your minds. We're going to have a very, I don't know how long the message is going to be, and that might be discouraging for some of you. I think it's rather short, actually, but we'll see how it goes. Um, Paul has been writing this magnificent letter to the Christian church in Rome, right? Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians, they're trying to get along, they're, they're trying to find their feet, they're trying to find their unity in Christ. They've had some issues between this ethnic difference. Um, the Gentiles were feeling rather superior for various reasons, and the Jewish people were kind of complaining about that. And then the Jewish Christian community was probably thinking that they needed to be more Old Testament-ish, and the Gentiles were pushing back on that. And so Paul writes this beautiful, very deep, very rich letter. The, he spends 11 chapters talking about God. 11 chapters talking about God. And then he finally gets to chapter 12. And that'll be, in, I'm going to get there in two weeks. In two weeks. You're going to have to wait two weeks to get to the most amazing word for me in Romans. He says, therefore. Eleven chapters. And now he says, therefore. And what he does is, he puts what he's taught into action. So what are you going to do with all this information? And that's, that's a lot, isn't it? Eleven chapters. But he says, once we've ironed out some of the wrinkles, get our heads on straight, now let's look at how you're going to live that out. And that's coming up, um, the chapters 12 through 15. And I'm really excited about it. I've already looked into the first two verses in chapter 12. It is absolutely exciting. And I'm, I'm burning with go, go, let's get, let's get this thing on the road. But we cannot get there yet until we do what Paul does. At the end of that 11th chapter, after all that conversation about God and answering all those questions that they had, remember all the great Scott knows? There's 10 of them. And he says, no way, no how, 10 times. Finally, at the end, you know what he can do at the very end? He just has to let it all out. He says, I just have to praise God. He just can't do anything less. He could have just jumped into the therefore. He can't. He's got to thank 
God. He cuts loose with a doxology. And so let's look at these words now that he writes at the close of chapter 11 before he gets to the therefore. And it reminds us how important it is that we praise God and give God thanks. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, <laughs> comes next. But let's pray first. Heavenly Father, God, it's exciting. We've covered a lot of ground. Romans is very deep and very rich and makes us really think. And Lord God, we thank you that we have this precious letter. We're thankful, Father, that your Holy Spirit inspired Paul and that the church received it and kept it and provided this letter for us today. And we're thankful, Father, for this doxology, this praise to you, your glory. Thank you, Father, that we too can say the same things with the same heart, with the same love and appreciation for all that you do and all that you've done. And Lord God, what you will do. And so, God, we come and give you thanks and praise and glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I thought at this time I would do a brief overview of 11 chapters. Um, it's actually kind of impossible, but in flipping through my Bible, because there's so much detail, so much depth there, it's inevitable we'd overlook something. But I went through my Bible page by page and looked at it, and, I, and the things that jumped out and hit me are the ones that I want to reiterate for all of us this morning, the journey we've been on. Paul opened up his letter by noting that Jesus Christ has two natures. He is divine. He's God come down from heaven. He's the Son of God, and he's fully human. He starts that right off. He also notes that the gospel, the good news that we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross, buried, rose again from the grave, all of that good news is already mentioned in the Old Testament. It wasn't something that cropped up that nobody knew about when Jesus came. It was already prophesied and taught in the Old Testament. And that Paul brought out as well. We saw many references to the law, which is basically Exodus 19 to 24, where Moses received the law of God on Mount Sinai. And we know that the he quotes Isaiah frequently throughout the book. In fact, Romans quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book does. So he's really rooting his word in the word of God's Old Testament, the First Testament, right? So he backs up what he's saying, and what he's trying to get across, or does successfully, is he's saying, I'm not telling you something new. You should know this along the road already. The Jewish Christian community has been privileged, called, and chosen with these blessings, and they knew in advance that the Messiah would come. They knew in advance that we're saved by faith, not by religious works or any other good deeds. We know that we're saved by an act of God and not our own. All of that is there. 
And he says, what a privilege it is to have known this. He also knows that obedience to the Lord comes from faith first, and that faith itself comes from God, who calls and elects, chooses people to come to faith in Jesus. A major theme is the gospel's the power of God for salvation, not works or ethnicity. You don't need to be Jewish to be saved. You don't need to be a Gentile to be saved. We're all one in Christ Jesus. So the division in Rome had no biblical basis. Sin is rampant in the world around us and in our own lives, though we should know better. The consequences of sin is death. God will judge everybody on Judgment Day according to what they've done. All the judgments in the Bible are all works-oriented. We'll give an account to God, all of us. The reason that we don't worry about that or are afraid about that is because when Christ died on the cross, all the negative, all the sin, all the things we should have done and didn't, and the things that we did do and we should not have done, and the things that we didn't even know about, all of those things were taken upon Christ who died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. Therefore, when we stand before God Almighty on that judgment day, the only works left that God judges are the good ones. Well done, good and faithful servant, as Jesus said in the parable. Well done. That's God's judgment. And that's why the Christian has freedom. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed, right? There's freedom in Jesus Christ. And Paul echoes those same things. Jew and Gentile alike. No favoritism. No one gets immunity from sin's consequences apart from faith in Christ. Jews are privileged to have in the law, but that doesn't mean that they're saved. You know, they're, they're called God's chosen people, but they're not chosen for salvation, Paul says. There's been a remnant from within that group that's been saved by faith, but the majority have always been a rough bunch. In fact, this is just stretching it out a little bit further, but remember the story of Jacob. You got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name was Trickster. That's what the name meant. And he was really a tricky fellow. And he was all full of shenanigans and all kinds of bad behaviors and pretty much godlessness in all of his younger years. And then later on, he wrestles with God. And God renames him because he finally is humbled and he comes to faith and he realizes, I'm not God. And so God says, you're no longer Jacob. Your name is Israel. You know what Israel means? One who wrestles with God. And that's not, you know, we might wrestle with God too when we're sinning, right? We're wrestling. But as a believer in Christ, God has taken me to the mat every time in one. <laughs> and I'm glad for that. I'm grateful. The law actually makes us more conscious of sin. It makes it clearer. Nobody without the law is exempt. The wages of sin is death and everybody dies. But Paul's point is to say that God gave us the law to really make it clear how far apart we are from God, that we're far separated than we might imagine, more separated, and that through Christ Jesus we're brought back together. I like to say the Bible's really pretty simple in its broadest sense. This is God. This is us. How is it that we're brought together? And Christ is at the center of it all. If I were to sum it up, I'd say that's the easiest way I would do it. Righteousness, to be as right as God, 
comes from God through faith in Jesus to all who believe. Just as the Old Testament says, the law humbles us, but God lifts us up with grace and mercy. We're all descendants of Adam, so we're all sinners without a living spirit to God. And that's why in the New Testament, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again, born from above by the power of the Holy Spirit. Everybody has sinned and falls short of the glory of God, but by God's grace, we're freely justified as if we'd never, ever sinned. We're grateful. God graciously adopts us. Remember the passage about the adoption? That an adopted Roman child had more rights than a natural child did. A natural child could be removed from the will, could be removed from the estate, could be disowned. But if a person adopts a child, they're legally bound to that child forever. And we are adopted by God. If you ever thought that God would throw you out or throw you away, think about that. When God adopts us through faith in Jesus Christ, we are family forever. That's a great secure message that comes out in Romans. Believers are justified by what Jesus did. Evidence of salvation is by faith in the Lord, and it's, it goes clear back to Abraham. Paul would write elsewhere that Abraham was told the gospel. And at, when I was younger, I used to think, well, if Abraham knew the gospel, did he know the name of Jesus? Did he know about the cross? Did he know about all the things the New Testament said? I mean, to me, there's, that's the gospel. But gospel itself means good news. And what good news did Abraham receive? God said, you believe me, I credit that to you as righteousness. You are right with me by faith. And when you go back to the book of Romans, Paul starts in chapter 1, around verse 17, right? He says, you're saved by faith from first to last. And that is so Old Testament, that's God's plan throughout. There's no plan A, plan B, it's God's plan throughout. And Paul resonates with that and amplifies it for us to understand more clearly that we are, with Abraham, saved by faith. And as Paul would point out, faith in the Messiah, faith in Christ. Did the Old Testament people know the Messiah was coming? How about Genesis 3? What did, what did God tell Adam and Eve? One of Eve's offspring will be the one who stomps on the head of the serpent, crushing evil, crushing the cause for sin and evil and death in the world, and bring life again. That's the Messiah, the Savior. And that goes clear back to the incidence of sin at the very beginning. God provided a solution. And I will give you a little fun little note, too, for those that aren't familiar with it. When Eve gave birth to her first son, she named him Cain. Cain in Hebrew means there he is, and there he was not. But they were by faith ready for the Messiah to come. And that didn't happen for a long time. But that's God's sequence, God's saving work. And that's a wonder that God gives to us. We can call God Abba. Paul writes that we can call him Daddy. How many of us are comfortable with that? Dear Daddy, hi. I'm your son, your daughter today. I wanted to just let you know how much I love you because thank you for loving me. We did a little experiment for a while. We spent a week at least. I encouraged everybody in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, how about our Abba, our Daddy who is in heaven? Get that 
realization how personal God is and not just some remote idea or distant, uncaring and unfeeling and unloving being. Abba. And that's what we learn in Romans. We can call God Daddy. They were co-heirs with Christ. We shouldn't go on sinning, though, as children of the Lord. We shouldn't go on sinning so that grace can increase. That's my favorite one in all of the Romans. What, should we go on sinning so that grace can increase? Great Scott, no! Jenny knows this. Great Scott, no! And he's, he's as fervent as he can be. What's at the root of that? Well, the idea was that if God's glory is magnified as we come to worship Him and we say, thank you, God, for the forgiveness of our sins, this weird idea developed. If we really sin like crazy that week and we come to worship, wow! Think about how much more grateful we'll be. God will get even more praise. And he writes and says, that is crazy. What, should we go on sinning so grace can increase? Because grace will, God's grace, his free gift to us in Jesus, will exceed and protect us from the consequences of our sins, giving us eternal life. Yes, okay, but let's not abuse it. And that comes out in Romans as well. Jesus' death is our death. Jesus' burial is our burial. Jesus' resurrection is our resurrection. In other words, we're really identified. Our, our core being is in Christ. We are sinners, but that's not our identity. In fact, later on, Paul will say, my members sin. His tongue, his hands, his feet, his body, the members of his body are prone to sin. He says, remember that? What a wretched man that I am. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Ah, this is crazy. He says, I'm going nuts. I hate this. Who can save me from this body of death? He says, oh, but thanks be to God for our Savior, Jesus Christ. He doesn't say his identity is at stake, but he is saying, I still struggle until I meet him face to face. And I'm thankful to God for grace in Jesus Christ. That's in Romans. We live a new life, a life for Jesus. Don't fall into legalism based on the law. To think you'll be right with God, that's impossible. This side of heaven, sin is going to beat us down. But Christ lifts us up. Who will rescue us? Jesus. Who will bring eternal life? Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in every believer, interceding for us, strengthening us, guiding us. We don't know how to pray. Are you kind of stymied a little bit what to do with Israel and Gaza right now in terms of prayer? I am praying for justice because what happened there was, a, it was murder. But how do you have justice when the fallout or the peripheral stuff can get so wild and crazy and, and this whole thing can get bigger and bigger and bigger? It really can't. And only God knows what the future will bring and unfold, right? So how do we pray? Now here's the good news. Pray with boldness. Pray with the knowledge that you have. Pray with the understanding that you have. Because Paul would say, really nobody knows exactly how to pray because who could know God's mind completely? But because the Holy Spirit lives in you through faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God and prays 
accurately for you. So what that tells me personally is, if I pray, and it's not exactly the prayer that Jesus would pray, in other words, I wonder how many times Jesus would raise an eyebrow like, oh man, there he goes again. He's a little off, the, off mark here. But thank God, the Holy Spirit given to us by the Lord fixes that. You can't miss because the Holy Spirit will never miss. And I hope that that encourages all of us to pray and not feel like we can't or we wouldn't know what to say. I say, go for it. At, at the least, say, God, I love you. I'm a little bit stumped. I'm confused. I don't know how to go about this. I'm not sure where even to start. But I trust your Holy Spirit will pray for me and for the situation. And I look to see your will done. That can be a great prayer. And I hope that we're all praying. I hope that we're all praying. The, the world needs Jesus. Really. And this would be a time for Christ to shine. God works for the good of those who love him. We looked at that. God works for the good of those who love him. Some people use that as a sort of a health and wealth gospel. God is good. He will bless you. Everything will turn out good. And then sometimes bad things happen, and people get confused. And they say, why do bad things happen to good people? not recognizing that really there is no such thing as an absolutely good person. We're all sinners, and God disciplines those he loves. But at the same time, things happen, and God allows them to happen sometimes, right? Think about all the things God doesn't allow, praise the Lord. But God does allow things to happen in his sovereign will, and it's not God's choice or God's doing, but it's God's allowing, and there's a difference. And sometimes bad things happen, and we struggle and we wonder, how come? And we're confused. So what does it mean God works for the good of those who love him? Well, in the context of Romans, ultimately, what it means is your resurrection to eternal life. Think about the persecution the church faced. In the first 300 years of Christian existence, estimates are about a million Christians were killed because they're Christians. Various parts, North Africa, Rome, Palestine, different regions like this, people lost their lives for Christ. The ultimate good is that we have the resurrection, and the ultimate, ultimate good is our glory, as Paul would write it. We will be like Christ. We will be sinless. We will have the love of God full to overflowing. All the goodness we long for, all the stuff that troubles us because we know it's not right, all that comes to resolution in Jesus. And we're found to be right and justified and everything perfect as God intends us to be. And then one of my favorite ones is this. Nothing, and I mean nothing, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That really comes in handy at funeral services, memorials. Can nakedness or famine or sword separate us from the love of God? Can circumstances separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Paul had suffered so much, had been through so much, left for dead, fairly often shipwrecked, all the terrible things, and yet Paul, at the end, with that experience, can say, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's a great word of assurance. God has that sovereign freedom. 
we also found out that God, while choosing Israel to be his chosen people, did not choose them carte blanche to be saved. It, they weren't given immunity from sin. There was always a remnant going clear back to the book of Genesis where some believed and others did not. Some had religion without faith, and they were not part of that remnant. This has always been there. Now, God meant for Israel to be a nation of holy priests. Priests are the ones that bring the world and God together. They were to be a light to the world. They were to be salt and light. They were to bring the truth. They were to bring the message of the Messiah. They were the ones to tell the world that to be right with God, it's through faith in God's grace who loves them dearly that the Messiah is the means of our salvation. They had that in the Old Testament, but they turned in and it became sort of a self-contained, it's all about us and aren't we important, and they, they sought their own righteousness by what they did. And then God, in his missional uh, endeavors and plans for the world, then pushed that assignment out of Israel and into the Gentile world. Until the time the Gentiles are fulfilled, until that full number have come in that God has in mind, until that point comes, Israel will be resistant. And we looked at that, and we see Israel today is one of the least religious countries on the planet. About 30% have a God-centered life there. 70% do not. And in that context, the, the head-scratching in the church in Rome was, well, if God still chose the Jews, why are there so few of them that believe in Jesus? And why is it the Gentile Christians outnumber them now? It looks to us, they thought, that God had changed his plans, that he'd unchosen Israel and chosen them instead. And Paul spent three chapters at the end, 9, 10, and 11, explaining that, no, God's plans haven't changed, but the method, the means, the sequence that we did not know has now come clear to us as God has moved out of that chosen group into the Gentile world, not neglecting the Jewish community. Paul himself is a Jew who believes in Jesus. He's saying, I'm evidence. But the Gentiles are going to be the dominant missional force in the world. And in the end, sometime around the return of Christ, and that was the iffy part, the, the part that's kind of hard to understand, the timelines. But at some point, Israel, the people of Israel at that time, will come to faith in Jesus, the full number. We don't know if that's over the sequence of time or if it's a big event at the end. God knows, and we can trust him for it. So there's no room for spiritual pride. There's no room for one-upmanship. There are no such things as first-class Christians and second-class Christians. We're all saved by grace, God's grace. So then Paul says, isn't God amazing? Amen? That's what he does. He's been thinking about those 11 chapters, and at the end he, he just kind of gets stuck on it. He goes like, I can't get to the therefore. I can't, I can't get to the practicalities of it until we just take a few moments and say, wow, God, you're incredible. Amazing. So what is he doing? He closes with a doxology, the time of praise, and he praises God in poetry. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. Doesn't rhyme. In fact, many of us don't even realize we're reading poetry. 
if it's in the Old Testament. Hebrew poetry has to do with parallels. They'll, you know, have you ever read the Old Testament and wonder why they said the same thing twice? That's called poetry. You get a little bit more the second time. It's called parallelisms. And in this closing doxology, Paul is using parallels to help us appreciate the glory that he's expressing to God. And so I've combined the parallels for us in your outline so you can see more readily how the parallels match each other. And so let's look at those as he closes chapters 1 through 11. First, he mentions God's riches. 33 and the parallel is 35. Oh, the depth of the riches who has ever given to God that God should repay him. God, you've got all the riches. And he's not talking about money. He's just talking about the grandeur of God's glory, the richness of God's very being. God doesn't need glory. We give God glory, but it isn't needed. We give God glory in a way that expresses gratitude and thanksgiving. Some people have mistaken the idea that, that God's riches mean that God is needy, that we need to give God more riches, that we need to give God something God doesn't have. And then some people have actually said to me in the years in ministry, a few people have actually said, doesn't God seem a little self-centered to you? And I'm thinking... No. No, God is everything. He doesn't owe us anything. We owe God everything. And so he starts off with the riches. And who should repay God? Or God should repay him? Nobody. Riches govern the wisdom and the knowledge, as the NIV would put it, or maybe it stands alone. And I think it stands alone because of the Hebrew parallelisms. Um, it means that God's grace in Jesus Christ is the richest blessing God has given us. All good gifts come from above, right? The best one of all is the good news of Jesus, tying the whole Bible and our lives together with God. God is our patron. Some of you may not be familiar with Middle Eastern patronage, but in, the, in those times prior to Christ, in the time of Christ, if somebody had the ability and they were asked by the poor for help, they were expected culturally to help them. If you didn't help them, it was considered a great sin. So you would be a patron to them. You would give them what they needed. They, in response, if they were equally wealthy or equally capable, they would then return that gift in kind. But if you're poor and you're not wealthy, you can't do that. So then what can you do as a client of the patron? You give them glory. You give them praise and honor in public. You're loyal to them. You testify about their generosity. You tell others how wonderful they've been to you, how much you appreciate them. That's like our relationship with God. God has given us salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. We've received this. We can't return it in kind. God's riches, he, what can we give him? He's given us everything. What can we do then in response as clients of his patronage? Praise, worship service. What can I do for you, Lord? I'm yours. How can I express my gratitude? How can I express my thanks? That's what we do. We owe everything to God. Then he talks about wisdom. There's a parallel there as well. Oh, the depth of the wisdom 
Who has been his counselor? How many of us have been tempted to tell God what to do? Yeah, well, how many of our prayer requests are kind of like that, right? Or how many of us have to feel like we need to inform God that something's going on? Dear God, in case you didn't know, I'd like to tell you, and having now enlightened you and to been your counselor and informed you of what's really going on, um, this is what I think you need to do. And then if God doesn't do it that way, we get a little put out with God. What are you thinking? Right? That's an emotional thing for us. We want to have some, some cred there. We want to have some thinking that we know what we think is right. But Paul says, who's got wisdom like God? God needs no advice. And I thought to myself, God needs no advice. Then what does that tell me? That tells me that no matter what circumstances I face, no matter what happens in my life, God knows what's going on. And God knows the right path. Commit your ways to him, right? And he'll set your path straight. God's got the path. I may not know it. Sometimes I've known very little of it. Sometimes I've learned in my life that if I can just see the light right in front of me that God gives me, I need to step there. That's my job. God knows the whole thing, but for me, it, it's pretty foggy sometimes. How about you? But I do know from experience that there will be a light, enough light from God that I know where to put my foot. And then having done that by faith, God's light moves forward. And we walk by faith, not by sight right? That's what Paul is admiring God for, his wisdom. Who led Paul through his life? Who showed up on the road to Damascus and revealed Jesus? You know, how did Paul come to saving faith? He knows God's got all the smarts. God's got all the knowledge. God's got it. All Paul needs to do is respond. And that's my call and your call. Then he says, knowledge. Oh, the depth of the knowledge of God. Who has known the mind of the Lord? He's really referring to God's foreknowing, that God foreknew what would come to pass. Even as he would write in Romans, you see at this the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He's referring to God's timely activity. God knew well in advance, thousands of years after Adam and Eve that Christ would come and it be in that time frame at just the right time. Who had that kind of knowledge? Oh, God did. And I think he may well have been reflecting, too, on a psalm that comes back. It's Psalm 139, and I thought of uh, that psalm myself because I preached through the psalms here recently. And in that psalm, it has one of my favorite physics lessons. He's talking about how well God knows us. He says, God knows when I get up. God knows when I go to sleep. God knows when I go out. God knows when I come in. God knows everything about me. In fact, he gets, and this is where the physics comes in. He says, even though I could go faster than the wings of the dawn. You know what the wings of the dawn is? When the sun first breaches the horizon and that first little sunbeam shoots across the horizon. How fast is that? The speed of light. 
He didn't know what to say in that way. He didn't say the speed of light. But he says, if I could go faster than the speed of light, I couldn't outrun God. That's a great psalm. And in that psalm it says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. It's good to take God's word to heart and to know that God is with us and he's always with us and he's never without. We're not alone. We're not on our own. We're not unloved. We're not left to our own devices. Yes, he gave us brains. We should use them. How many of us prayed and asked God what socks to wear today? You know, God says, you got a brain, use it. But there's other knowledge that we can trust God with that he's always with us. How does that work? How does God know all this stuff? How can God hear millions of Christians pray simultaneously and hear everyone and know everyone individually? I don't know. That's knowledge that's beyond me. It's lofty. I can't get there. But God knows. That would be God. Then he says judgments. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. In other words, God's decisions over the course of history are God's to have made. I could not have orchestrated history as God has done. I could not have had Christ on the cross at just the right time. You know, that is so intriguing to me that prior to the Roman occupation with Pontius Pilate in Palestine, prior to that, the Jewish means of executing somebody was by stoning. But the book of Isaiah talks about how Christ has been pierced and that if you're hung on a tree, you're cursed. And it was only when the Romans took that occupation after Herod the Great and one of his sons failed to be a good leader, they replaced him and put Pontius Pilate in there. The Roman law then became the law of the land. How would you then execute criminals? Only by crucifixion. I found that fascinating. And that only happened a few years prior to Christ's crucifixion. How does God work this stuff out? It's amazing. God knows. When will Jesus come back? Well, that'll be amazing. When will it be? Some of us might say, well, Lord, I got ideas. Now would be great. Right? And, and we can pray for that without telling God what to do. We pray in faith. But at the same time, God's got it. God knows. His judgments are beyond our tracing out. But they're always perfect. And then last... He talks about God's supremacy. He, he's, he could probably go on and on and on with a list, and that's where I mentioned at the start of the service. I'd like to hear if you have a word that describes something that strikes you about God. But he wraps it up like this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And it's that amen that marks the contrast between knowing about God and now what do we do with that. And in two weeks, like I said, we're going to get to that great therefore. So I encourage you to read the first two verses, dig into those, they're amazing. And then all after that, it's very applicable. With our loyalty and obedience and worship and service and love and testimony, we're going to love the Lord. Before we have a chance to share a word, I thought, you know, sometimes... I don't know about you, but if the pastor said to me and I'm out in the congregation, I want you to mention a word about God. And maybe I, got my, I have my go-to favorite, like Almighty. That's a good one. 
But I thought I would read a list of what someone put together with the alphabet to help you think about other words. And I, I don't want you to just say a word. I want to know a meaningful word, something that really means something to you, comes from your heart that you can share with the congregation. I'm not looking for a long paragraph, but just a word or two that expresses the glory of God. So here's the list. I'll start with A. Awesome, advocate, amazing, author, avenger, Abba, almighty, B. Brilliant, benevolent, bountiful, beautiful, bold, bruised, boundless. C. Creator, comforter, conqueror, compassionate, caring, consuming fire, cornerstone, courageous, constant. D. Daddy, delightful, deliverer, dignified, discerning, divine, dominion, destroyer. E. El Shaddai, or powerful, almighty. Emmanuel, eternal, example, extraordinary, exalted, excellent. Father, faithful, forgiving, friend, fearsome, first, forever. Good shepherd, glorious, generous, gentle, gatherer, holy, holy, holy. Helper, healer, humble, honest. Immeasurable, immortal, immutable, immovable, invincible, involved, instructor, imminent, I am. Joyful, just, justifier, jealous, Jehovah Jireh, or the Lord provides, judge, Kind, king, knowable, loving, limitless, listener, long-suffering, lovely, lamb, lamp, life, Lord, meek, merciful, Messiah, magnificent, martyr, mighty, miracle maker, master, now, near, never-ending, noble, nurturer, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, omnibenevolent, only God, one Patient, peacemaker, perfect, praiseworthy, pure, protector, potter, physician, personal, pleasing, provider, quintessential, quickener, ruler, refuge, rock, radical, real, reliable, rest, refresher, rescuer, revered, righteous, redeemer, sacred, savior, sanctifier, shield, shelter, shepherd, spirit, stronghold, supernatural, Son, sovereign, transcendent, triumphant, truth, teacher, trinity, treasure, upright, unblemished, unique, unlimited, unforgettable, valiant, vast, vine, vindicator, victorious, wise, wonderful, word, way, warrior, witness, wounded, worthy, x-ray vision, my favorite, Yahweh, yoked with us, yearning, Yes, zealous. I just thought I would get our minds and hearts going with just some examples of what can be done. Can you imagine if you went home this week and you, you just write the alphabet on the left side and start writing? What comes to your mind? And then let that be your devotion that day. It's amazing where that takes you. So is there a word from your heart that you could just speak aloud that we can all benefit from and give God glory for? He hears us. Absolutely. Faithful. Gracious. Patient. So patient. Very patient. Emmanuel. God with us. I'm sorry? Understanding. Absolutely. We don't have a priest that doesn't understand us. Yes. Forgiving. 
loving, love, comforter, indweller, kind, counselor, yes, amen, merciful. I don't want to overlook anybody in the balcony either. Wave your hand wildly if I... Okay. Sovereign and gracious. You know, I'm hearing your heart. There's a lot of words we could use, right? We're just hearing those meaningful pieces that have been hitting us this right, right now. King. Yep, he's our king. Lord of lords, king of kings. Always there. Faithful. I'm sorry? A safe place. Yes, absolutely. Huh? Anybody else? There's so many things we could say. Empowers. Ours. Yes. Amen. I like daddy a lot. That's something I'm really working on, to be honest with you. It's, it seems so intimate, it's almost scary, you know, to say God is Daddy. With all respect, uh, it's, it's just mind-boggling to me how intimate that is. That's something I'm always working on. Anybody else? This is good. Amen. Yep. People catch it in different ways. In fact, when I was preaching in Alaska to the native community up there, um, I was talking about heaven one time at a memorial service, and I said, you know, maybe thinking about an Alaska moment, I said, I think sometimes heaven is like the community of faith gathered around the coffee maker, sipping coffee together. And one guy after the service says, you know, I finally think I understand what heaven is. Well, it's community, it's, it's gathering, it's Christ-centered, it's, it's not gathering around the coffee pot, but it's gathering around Christ, and we're together, and it's wonderful. There's so many things we can say, so many things make our hearts warm, and the world, the world needs to know God like that, right? And as opportunities arise, we can mention those words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, it is such a wonder that we can worship you and know you. You've revealed yourself to us. Lord God, creation itself, Paul would write and did write, creation itself declares your glory. And there's so many things about you that we can discern with open hearts and minds just from creation itself. You declare. And so, God, we thank you that we have even more than that. We have your special word. We have 
revelation that you have chosen to reveal yourself with much more detail and more accounts that help us to know who we are and who you are and how it is that we can connect through faith in Christ. And that is your doing for us. Thank you, God, that we are who we are in Christ. Thank you that in the world full of trouble, Jesus knows sometimes our hearts get a little low, but we can take heart because you are God and that Christ has overcome the world. So God, we gather together today to say thank you for who you are. Thankful for all that you do. Thankful that you are fully, completely aware of what's happening in our world, whether it's Ukraine or Israel or Gaza and who knows wherever else, things we don't even hear in the news. God, you care deeply. And I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit will sweep this world with a greater sense that you are Almighty God, that you, Lord God, are a God of love and grace and mercy and compassion, and that there is a means to connect with you. And it's not legalism. It's not religiosity. It is not some ideology. It is simply rooted in your love that by the grace you've given us, that free gift, that that is available to the world. That the only means of having peace with you and ultimately with each other is Jesus. So God, we pray your victory. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's for you, Lord. It's your glory at work. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.
Join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And may the love of our Father Abba and the wonderful sacrificial grace of our Savior Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. And all of God's wonderful people can say, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Come on down the hallway for goodies and visiting. I will warn you, though, I have a head cold. So if you want to talk and visit with me, you're welcome. But I don't want to share that one. <laughs>